Hello everyone and welcome to the December 12th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled on what is called a contentious trilogy of cases filed by MedLegal Associates against a workers' compensation QME. In this case, back in 1983, while he was a medical resident, Dr. Bruce Fishman was named in a Michigan federal indictment, and he later pled guilty to a single count of conspiracy to distribute a controlled substance. His medical license was then revoked in both California and Michigan. After he applied for a California reinstatement of his license in 1989, it was reinstated. Then in 2003, Dr. Fishman applied to become a QME and was appointed and then reappointed several times as a QME. Then in 2008, Dr. Fishman entered into a relationship with Green Lean Collections Incorporated, a company owned by Patrick Nazemi. In 2011, Nazemi formed MedLegal Associates Incorporated with the intent to provide management services to medical legal providers. Dr. Fishman entered into a management services agreement with them in November 2012, but soon the relationship between them deteriorated. At this point, three relevant separate and independent procedural timelines begin. One, an arbitration between Dr. Fishman and MedLegal. Two, a key Tom whistleblower action against Dr. Fishman filed by Nazemi organizations. And three, the suspension of his QME status by the DWC, presumably prompted by a letter sent on behalf of Nazemi organizations. With regard to the first arbitration timeline, after a five-day hearing in February 2017, the arbitrator issued a final award in favor of Dr. Fishman. MedLegal's petition to vacate the arbitration award was denied, and judgment was entered in favor of Dr. Fishman. So MedLegal appealed, and on March 8, 2019, the Court of Appeal affirmed the arbitration judgment. With regard to the third timeline involving the suspension of Dr. Fishman's QME status by the DWC, Dr. Fishman filed a petition for writ of mandate asking the trial court to set aside the adverse decision by the Division of Industrial Relations. Then, in August 2021, the trial court granted his petition for writ of mandate and set aside the DIR suspension order of his QME status for various reasons. Now, the Court of Appeal case before us concerns the second timeline on the Insurance Fraud Preventions Act, that's IFPA, key Tom action against Dr. Fishman, filed by the MedLegal parties. In June 2020, Dr. Fishman filed a motion for judgment on the pleadings seeking dismissal of the sole remaining cause of action for a violation of the Insurance Fraud Preventions Act, which was ultimately granted by the trial court, finding that the sole remaining cause of action was barred by the doctrine of collateral estoppel because of the earlier arbitration decision in the first litigation timeline. 
Attorney fees were awarded to Dr. Fisherman in the amount of $197,500. But the Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished case of State of California versus Dr. Fishman. The new opinion commenced by noting that this appeal is just one slice of contentious litigation between Mr. Nazemi and his entities and Dr. Fishman. Regarding the arbitration decision, there were at least two elements of collateral estoppel that were not satisfied. For example, it was unclear whether the issue in the key Tom proceeding is the same as the one at issue in the arbitration case. Thus, for this and for other reasons, it was concluded that the trial court erroneously granted Dr. Fishman's motion for judgment on the pleadings. However, the Court of Appeal concluded the opinion with the remark that the appellate record of this appeal and the prior one have the earmarks of malice, and it does not seem that Mr. Nizami has a and it does seem excuse me, it does seem that Mr. Nizami has a personal vendetta against Dr. Fishman. And a WCAB panel concluded that proof of prejudice was required for the doctrine of laches to support the dismissal of a 20-year-old lien claim. In this case, Ramiro Rodriguez claimed a 2003 continuous trauma claim of injury to multiple body parts while employees as a forklift operator by Las Vegas LA Express. The employer denied the claim in its entirety. Two QMEs evaluated the applicant and reported in the case, but were not paid. And several years later, applicant's claim was dismissed for lack of prosecution in 2010. Then about nine years later, the matter proceeded to trial in 2019 regarding Angol Medical Collections' effort to collect liens for the two QMEs. The work comp judge issued an FNO on which he found that the lien claim was barred by laches and all other issues were found to be moot and were not addressed in the finding and order. The WCB panel, however, granted the lien claimant's petition for reconsideration, rescinded the finding and order, and remanded the case for further proceedings in the case of Ramiro Rodriguez versus. Las Vegas LA Express. In common law legal systems, laches is a lack of diligence and activity in making a legal claim or moving forward with legal enforcement of a right. In this case, the lien claimant contends on reconsideration that the work comp judge erroneously found its lien was barred by laches because the employer did not prove prejudice from the delay in pursuing the lien. The panel cited case law indicating that the equitable doctrine of laches applies to proceedings before the appeals board and that the appeals board may apply the doctrine of laches to lien claims. However, the affirmative defense of laches requires unreasonable delay plus prejudice to the defendant resulting from the delay and this prejudice is never presumed. It must be affirmatively demonstrated by the defendant in order to sustain his burden of proof. 
The work comp judge, in his opinion on decision and report, was incorrect by stating that prejudice to the defendant may be presumed by this delay. The work comp judge presumed that the defendant's file had been destroyed, but there is no evidence in the record to support this presumption, and the employer has not demonstrated how it was prejudiced by the delay. Consequently, the evidence does not support a finding that the lien is barred by latches, and the case was returned to the trial level for further proceedings. And in another panel decision, it was held that the unused portion of a supplemental job displacement benefit voucher expires two years after it was issued. In this case, Andres Gomez was injured while working for the Vons companies. On July 17, 2017, he was issued two SJDB vouchers for two injuries he claimed. Nearly $3,164 in unused voucher funds were returned to the employer from the program he had chosen. Gomez attempted to recover the unused benefit, which the employer rejected, because these two vouchers expired on July 17, 2019, two years after they were issued, even though they were unused funds left over. At trial, Gomez pointed out that even though the vouchers were issued on July 17, 2017, he did not sign them until October 24, 2018. And then the employer delayed eight months in releasing the voucher funds, which was done on June 13, 2019. Nonetheless, the work comp judge found that the two supplemental job displacement benefit vouchers expired two years after they were issued and that the labor code prohibits payment or reimbursement of unused funds after the vouchers expired. And reconsideration was denied the panel decision of Gomez versus the Vons companies. Gomez contends on reconsideration that the vouchers should not be deemed expired and that instead they should be deemed used when he signed the vouchers and selected a retraining program. But the labor code provides that a voucher shall expire two years after the date the voucher is furnished to the employee or five years after the date of the injury, whichever is later. The two vouchers here were issued on July 17, 2017 and thus expired on July 17, 2019. The panel pointed out that even if, under a liberal interpretation, the expiration date of two vouchers was told by the eight-month delay, the told expiration date of the vouchers would be March 17, 2020, and the welding school returned the unused voucher funds on December 31, 2020, which was after the told expiration date. And in an employment law case, an employer arbitration motion failed as a result of a poor documentation of signing the arbitration agreement between the parties. In this case, Laura Ramos sued her formal, former employer, Smile Brands, for various causes of action pertaining to the termination of her employment. Smile Brands is a dental business headquartered in Irvine, California, with eight 
5,000 dedicated team members at over 650 affiliated dental offices around the United States. Beginning in 2005, Ms. Ramos worked as an office manager for Smile Brands at several offices in the Inland Empire. Brands moved to compel arbitration and explained that the company had a software program called Smile U that they used for human resources documents and employee training. The arbitration agreement was presented as a required document in 2017 in a section of Smile U entitled Courses I Have to Do. Upon opening the arbitration agreement, an employee would have needed to scroll through the entire text of the agreement before checking a box at the bottom of the agreement indicating that the employee consented to the terms. The arbitration agreement included an opt-out provision that required an opt-out form be mailed to human resources. In opposition to the motion, Ramos pointed out that the agreement attached to Brand's motion is completely blank, had no date, no timestamp, no signature, no initials, or any other indication it was signed by anyone. The employer also attached an Excel-type printout, the training record, which lists the agreement as one of several dozen lessons that Ms. Ramos supposedly completed. But, again, there was no signature, date, timestamp, or anything establishing its accuracy. In a declaration, Ramos declared that she did not sign the arbitration agreement in 2017 and she would not have signed it had she seen it. She also declared that she regularly checked the completed documents and courses listed in SmileU and she never saw an arbitration agreement listed there. And Ramos declared that the training record filed by Brands included other errors for example, the training record reflected Ramos completed courses on days she was not at work. The trial court denied the motion and the Court of Appeal affirmed and the trial affirmed the trial court in the unpublished case of Ramos versus Smile Brands. The opinion noted that Brands provided an arbitration agreement without a signature and without a checkmark. But Brands also provided a training record reflecting that Ramos' arbitration agreement was complete. For the sake of argument, the Court of Appeal presumed, without deciding, that such evidence satisfied Brands' prima facie burden of proof that there was an arbitration agreement between the two parties, and at that point the burden shifted to Ramos. Then, in the declaration, Ramos explained that she typically reviews legal documents with her husband and one of her sons who works in the legal field. And, back in 2012, Brands gave Ramos an arbitration agreement and she discussed the 2012 agreement with her husband and son prior to rejecting it. She then explained that she would have remembered if she saw the arbitration agreement again in 2017 because she had rejected it in 2012 and would have discussed it again with her husband and her son. She declared that the first time she saw the 2017 arbitration agreement was when her attorney showed it to her as part of the instant litigation. 
So the opinion went on to say that the testimony of a single credible witness may constitute substantial evidence and that her declaration is not a conclusory, self-serving statement. Rather, her declaration includes an explanation as to why she is able to credibly assert that she did not see nor sign the 2017 agreement. Thus, the burden then shifted back to Smile Brands to authenticate their evidence of her alleged consent, and they failed to present evidence of who or what created the training record and how the training record was created or generated. And now our crime report. 70-year-old Francis O'Keer, a previously licensed insurance agent in Westlake Village, California, was sentenced to two years in county jail and to pay restitution in full after pleading no contest to 17 felony counts of identity theft and grand theft by false pretenses. The Department of Insurance began its investigation of him after receiving a complaint from one of his ex-relatives that he had stolen the identities of several people in order to open a new insurance agency. The investigation confirmed that Mr. O'Keary stole the identities of four victims in order to open Cyber Access Insurance Agency, and the identities were also used on small business loan applications to fund the fraudulent agency, that he had also applied for a series of small business administration and paycheck protection program loans, the federal program to help businesses during the COVID-19 pandemic. O'Keary was arrested last August along with his alleged accomplice, 40-year-old Holly Freeman, also charged with four felony counts of identity theft for her alleged involvement in the same scheme. However, this is the second time accusations have been brought against Mr. O'Keary. He was previously convicted of grand theft following another Department of Insurance investigation, which found he stole $65,456 in insurance premiums from small business owners. The charges in the earlier case arose from an investigation into multiple complaints filed by clients alleging that their insurance policies were canceled despite paying Mr. O'Keary for the coverage. O'Keary's fraud left the business's, business owners uninsured against potential liability and workers' compensation claims. The department ordered O'Keary to surrender his license back in 2019. Several Central Coast healthcare providers have agreed to pay a total of $22.5 million to resolve allegations that they violated federal and California law by causing the submission of false claims to Medi-Cal. Dignity Health owns and operates three hospitals and one clinic in Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo counties, and they entered into one of the agreements with the United States and California. The second settlement agreement resolves allegations against Twin Cities Community Hospital and Sierra Vista Regional Medical Center, two acute healthcare facility subsidiaries of Tenet Healthcare Corporation, operating in San Luis Obispo County. 
Back in 2014, Medi-Cal was expanded to cover the previously uninsured adult expansion population, which was adults between the ages of 19 and 64 without dependent children, with annual incomes below a threshold near the federal poverty level. The two settlements resolve allegations that Dignity, Twin Cities, and Sierra Vista knowingly caused the submission of false claims to Medi-Cal for these so-called enhanced services that they purportedly provided to the adult expansion patients. But the United States and California alleged that the payments were not allowed medical expenses permissible under the contract and the enhanced services were duplicative of services already required to be rendered. As a result of its settlement, Dignity will pay $13.5 million to the United States and $1.5 million to the state of California. Twin Cities and Sierra Vista have agreed to pay $6.5 million to the United States and $750,000 to the state of California. The civil settlements include the resolution of claims brought under the Key Tom or whistleblower provisions of the Federal False Claims Act by Julio Bordas, who will receive $3.9 million as his share of the federal recovery. The California Insurance Commissioner announced that Elisor Laboratories of America has agreed to $23.8 million settlement in a lawsuit which alleged the company violated the Insurance Frauds Prevention Act in California. This settlement brings to a close a 2016 whistleblower lawsuit brought against Essilor. Essilor manufactures, markets, and distributes optical lenses and equipment used to produce optical lenses throughout California and the nation. The suit alleged that Essilor provided kickbacks and other unlawful incentives to eye care providers that ultimately hurt consumers by unfairly driving them toward more expensive services. After investigating the allegations, the California Department of Insurance filed a complaint in intervention in the case in 2021. The lawsuit alleged that Essilor provided unlawful kickbacks to eye care providers with an upfront payment of tens of thousands of dollars and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in exchange for these providers' promises to send businesses to Essilor for a period of anywhere between three to five years. The providers were free to use the upfront payment in any manner that they chose so long as they hit the volume requirements required by the agreement. And the lawsuit alleged that SLR further provided kickbacks to California eye care providers through a program called Practice Builder, where providers were given cash payments for using SLR lenses and laboratory services to re reward the eye care providers who prescribed and dispensed SLR's more expensive lessons and coatings and to use its laboratory services. These incentives are prohibited under the Insurance Frauds Prevention Act as these illegal acts can and do influence medical decision making. Eslor allegedly submitted false claims to California private payors, including insurance companies, healthcare savings plans, and vision benefit organizations.
And in regulatory news, the California Division of Workers' Compensation announced that registration for its 30th annual educational conference is now open. This conference will take place in person on March 9th and 10th, 2023 at the Oakland Marriott City Center Hotel and on March 23rd and 24th, 2023 at the Los Angeles Airport Marriott Hotel. This annual event is the largest workers' compensation training in the state and allows claims administrators, attorneys, medical providers, return-to-work specialists, employers, human resource professionals, and others to learn firsthand about the most recent developments in this system. The presenters include the administrative director, DWC judges and senior staff, and outside experts. DWC has applied for continuing educational credit by attorney, rehabilitation counselor, case manager, disability management, human resource, and qualified medical examiner certifying organizations, among others. Attendee, exhibitor, and sponsor registration may be found at the DWC Educational Conference webpage. The National Safety Council is America's leading nonprofit safety advocate and has been for more than 100 years. It works to eliminate the leading cause of preventable death and injury, focusing on efforts in the workplace, roadway, and impairment areas. And its Work to Zero program aims to eliminate workplace fatalities through the use of technology. To learn more about creating a safer workplace, interested parties are invited to attend the Future of EHS 2023, that's Environmental Health and Safety Conference, beginning on January 31, 2023, throughout February 2, 2023, in Long Beach, California. This conference brings together environmental health and safety professionals business leaders, researchers, and solutions providers for an open exchange of forward-looking ideas, the latest in safety innovations, and best practices. And the National Safety Council also just released a white paper through its Work to Zero initiative called Managing Risks with EHS Software and Mobile Applications. The report builds on the program's initial 2020 research and outlines how employers can use environment, health, and safety software and mobile applications to enhance their safety operation to prevent serious injuries and fatalities on the job. For this white paper, the Work to Zero initiative analyzed more than a dozen academic and industrial publications as well as conducted interviews with software providers for high-risk industries, such as construction and warehousing, to assess the latest trends and benefits of four distinct EHS software categories. In addition, several case studies were conducted with employers that adopted EHS software to further understand the benefits. Compared to utilizing traditional spreadsheet-based safety tracking, the Work to Zero initiative found organizations that adopt these modules can gain several advantages in preventing workplace injuries and deaths. 
As with any digital change, educating across all levels of the organization is a critical step in technology deployment. The Massachusetts Attorney General announced that retail pharmacy provider Walmart has agreed to pay back $500,000 after allegedly failing to follow prescription pricing procedures that are in place to prevent overcharges in the state's workers' compensation insurance system. This case is part of an ongoing review, uh, review by the Attorney General's office into prescription pricing procedures in its workers' compensation billing. The Attorney General has now reached settlements not only with Walmart, but also with Express Scripts, OptumRx, Walgreens, Stop and Shop, and United Pharmacy for workers' compensation drug pricing violations totaling over $16 million. The pricing procedures required by Massachusetts regulations ensure that prescription costs will be reviewed against certain regulatory benchmarks. According to documents filed in Suffolk County Superior Court in this case, Walmart allegedly failed to follow those regulations when applying prices for various injured worker prescriptions at Walmart pharmacy locations in Massachusetts. Their state system sets limits for the costs of prescriptions for injured workers and requires companies to validate prices against certain regulatory benchmarks before processing their charges, such as the federal upper limit for Medicare and Massachusetts maximum allowable cost. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles of Floyd, Scarin, Manukian Langeman. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.